So God says through the prophet Malachi, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, let's pray and ask for God's help as we turn to look at that passage. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word, and we pray that as we uh, look at this now, that you would speak to us by your Spirit, uh, that you would uh, cause us to see you as you wish to be seen, um, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to hear what you have to say to us today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, this evening is the uh, annual Oscars event, and um, I'm pretty sure that whatever film wins Best Picture this year, it will not have the same lasting impact as one of my all-time favorite uh, film franchises, Back to the Future. Uh, the adventures of Marty McFly and, and Doc Emmett Brown as they travelled back and forward in time in their DeLorean uh, were a source of great entertainment and, to be honest, uh, still are whenever I watch those films. And the fact that, that 2015 uh, came and went and we still don't have flying cars and hoverboards is a, it's a bit disappointing, really, isn't it? You know, throughout those films, the, the, the time machine uh, is used to change history so that the, the heroes of the story can avoid some, some terrible fate that they have seen in their futures. And as I watched those films, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if you were warned about some danger in advance so that you could take steps to avoid it before it became a reality? Wouldn't it be great to, to see how things were going to pan out so that you could make wise choices. 
Well, in the passage that we're looking at today, God gives his people an insight into the future. He tells them of uh, what awaits them depending on the choices that they make in the present. And the future that he shows them, it's the same future that awaits us. The same future with the same choice. And depending on what we choose will leave us with two very different outcomes. Today we reach the end of our study in the book of Malachi. And if you've been with us over the last couple of months, then you will know that this book is structured around six disputations, where six times God makes a declaration and six times the people dispute it or or question it. And today we reach the sixth and final disputation in the book, and it's there in verse 13 of chapter 3. God declares, your words have been hard against me. But as with each of God's declarations up to this point, the people dispute him. They say, how have we spoken against you? And we've seen again and again throughout this book that their response, it's not a a genuine inquiry attempting to understand how they have spoken against God. No, it's a declaration of unbelief. These people, they had strayed so far from God that they were blind to their true condition. They had no idea of how rebellious they'd become. Now remember, Israel in Malachi's day was a pretty depressed society. The people had returned from exile uh, and the temple had been rebuilt, but the nation was enduring a cost of living crisis. And they were under the thumb of a foreign power. And God's long-awaited promised king, he still hadn't come. In so many ways, their situation was grim. And their bitter circumstances, it shaped their deteriorating attitude towards God. And we've charted that downward spiral throughout this book. They began by first disputing God's declaration of love for them. And that denial of God's love led to an empty, formulaic worship where they just turned up at the temple and went through the motions. And that empty worship then led them to a place of faithlessness, faithlessness towards God and faithlessness towards one another. And that faithless disobedience resulted in a denial of God's goodness, of His justice which led them to the place where we left things last week, robbing God by withholding their tithes and contributions as they failed to trust that God would provide. Their hearts were far, far from God. And that showed in their response to Him. As they looked around and they saw the bitterness of their present circumstances, they had reached a place where they felt it was completely justified, not just to to grumble about God, but to openly rail against Him with harsh words, which is exactly what they do here in these verses. If you look with me at verse 14, they say, You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. 
Now, their words here, they echo the earlier complaint in chapter 2, verse 17. But if anything, they are a more extreme version of this same complaint, which was essentially, why do we, the faithful, have to suffer while the wicked seem to prosper? What's the point of going to the temple and offering up our sacrifices? What's the point of serving God when it doesn't pay? Life is full of bitterness, not blessing, so why bother? And look at those surrounding nations. They don't trust in Yahweh. They're wicked, and he does nothing about it. In fact, they just seem to be getting on great. Now, of course, that complaint, it's nothing new. It's a familiar one, isn't it? It's one that if we are honest with ourselves, we can easily tend towards. It's a complaint that is born out of comparisons about our present circumstances. When we, when we look around us and we see others seemingly thriving while we seem just to be surviving. Uh, and in our social media age, where it's so easy to project an idealized version of life, it's just as easy to, to fall into the trap of scrolling through profiles and Instagram photos, enjoying uh, uh, and envying this seemingly idyllic life of others, and asking ourselves, why is my life not going as well as theirs? What is the point of trying to be faithful to God if those who pay no regard to Him seem to be having so much better of a time than I am? And those who are actively hostile to God seem to be prospering while the faithful seem to suffer. And we only need to look at our own country in the last a couple of weeks to see the way that, that Christians have been mocked and, and condemned for their beliefs, where the message has come across loud and clear from the, the, the places of power that someone who holds to a biblical worldview is unfit for high office. And if we look further afield, there are Christians who are suffering terribly for their faith at the hands of unjust regimes, countries where, where faithful, faithfulness to Christ can lead to the loss of livelihoods, liberty, and even life. And then there are the more personal, individual situations where, where you might suffer at the hands of another, where someone's sin or, or selfishness it may be causing you heartache and, and pain. And it can be easy to ask, why does God let that happen? What's the point of being faithful? Uh, and if we're not careful, we can end up doing what Israel did here. See, it's okay to complain to God, to, to, to pour out your heart to Him. But what's wrong, as we saw earlier in this series, and what we see again here, is complaining bitterly about God and His seeming failure to act is where unbelief sets in. And that is why it is so important that we get a right perspective on the future and on the way that God works. And that is what this passage gives us. See, even though they didn't deserve it, 
despite their harsh words, God graciously gives them a glimpse into the future. And it's that glimpse of the future that ought to transform our attitude to the present. If you look with me at verse 16, we read there, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, of course, we've seen throughout this book that the people of Malachi's day were deluded. They thought that they were faithful, uh, when in actual fact, they were just going through the motions. They failed to see that they were just as wicked as those that they were complaining about. And yet, time after time, despite their cynicism, despite their unbelief, despite their complaints, God was patient. And evidently, his patience, his mercy, it led some in Israel to heed his call to repentance that we saw in verse 7 of chapter 3, where God said, return to me and I will return to you. And here in verse 16, we see that that's what some of them did. Some of them, we're told, feared the Lord. Now, the kind of fear that is being spoken about there is is reverence, respect, trust in God, treating Him as He deserves to be treated as the sovereign God of the universe. It's a complete contrast to to the way that God had been treated by His people throughout this book. Instead of disrespect, dishonor, disregard, those who feared God treated Him as He deserved to be treated, with awe and honor and love. When we fear the Lord in that way, it will shape our response to Him. As we dwell on who He is and what He's done, as we consider His character and His ways, it will stir our hearts to love Him as we remember His saving love for His people. It will cause us to worship Him as the Lord of hosts, the one who rules over all things and is worthy of our worship. It will lead us to obey Him as we recognize that He is our King and He deserves our honor as our our Creator and Ruler. And it will draw us to trust that He is good and He is the giver of all good gifts. And as we wonder at all that He's done, well, that should shape the way that we speak about him to others. And that's exactly what happened in Israel in Malachi's day. See, notice, rather than grumbling about God to one another, those who feared the Lord, they encouraged one another to return to him. And just as God had promised, he he heard them, and their names were written down in a book of remembrance, a tangible physical record of their repentance. Isn't that interesting? There was a written record within Israel of those who returned to the Lord. There were a distinct group of people within Israel who were considered the faithful. Now that tells us that it wasn't enough to simply be part of the nation of Israel that to be in a right relationship with God, it wasn't based on their ethnicity or their history or their upbringing. It was only those who feared the Lord 
who had faith who were written in the book, who were declared his. And that's the clear teaching of the Bible that we, we see throughout the Bible. For example, in Romans chapter 4, that, the, that Paul says that the true people of God, they are not those who belong to a, a particular people, group, or nation. It's not those who observe a certain set of religious rituals. It's those who have faith. And the vision that we have at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation is of a gathering of people from every tribe and tongue and nation whose names are written in a similar book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And all those whose names are in that book, they are gathered around the throne of God, united not by ethnicity, not by upbringing, but by faith. And isn't it wonderful that we get a tiny glimpse of that every time we gather together as a church family. And here we are, a, a community of God's people drawn from all over the world with all sorts of different backgrounds and, and experiences with no earthly reason to be drawn together like this and yet all belonging to the same people, the same family, a people united together by the same faith in the Lord Jesus. These people, they were suffering. Their circumstances were bitter. But for those who feared the Lord, for those who had faith and returned to him that day, they were given the most incredible glimpse of the future that awaited them. If you look with me at verse 17, God says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So as these people looked around and they saw the wicked prospering, God pointed them to a day when their suffering and sorrow would cease once and for all. A day when there would be no more poverty or pain or injustice. A day when they would know what it is to be the treasured possession of the Lord of hosts. Isn't that a wonderful day to set our eyes on? The Christian, are you suffering right now? Are you struggling? Maybe you're enduring something really difficult and you're wondering if it will ever come to an end. Well, be assured that one day there will be relief. One day you will know the joy, the contentment, the delight of being God's treasured possession in all its fullness. Right now, the wicked may look like they are prospering, and the righteous may suffer, but in the grand scheme of eternity, that is only for a brief moment. God promises that a day is coming when those who trust in him will see the full picture. Verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So God promises that a day is coming when the difference between the righteous and the wicked will be plain to see. But he doesn't just promise them that that day is coming. In chapter 4, he gives them a vivid picture of what that day will look like. If you look with me at verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, the day that God is talking about here is uh, what is known as the day of judgment. And in this day and age, uh, any talk of a judgment day can make us shuffle in our seats uncomfortably. It's easy to stand up here and talk about God's love, his mercy, his compassion of being God's treasured possession. But talking about a day like the one that is described in chapter 4 of Malachi, a day that is described as burning like an oven that sets the arrogant and the evildoer ablaze, well, that's a whole other matter. And the temptation when it comes to talking about God's judgment is to sweep it under the carpet as quickly as possible. But notice that is not God's approach at all. He says, he begins chapter 4, verse 1, with the word behold. Uh, he's saying, look, pay attention. He really wants his people to hear what he has to say. And he uses vivid imagery to describe the seriousness of that judgment. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the fact that God has promised that there will be a day when all evildoers will be punished when all wrongs will be made right, when justice will be done and will be seen to be done, that is a good thing. That ought to be a source of great comfort and reassurance in the present. When we suffer at the hands of others, when we face injustice, when we see the wicked prosper, we can be sure that they won't get away with evil forever. God will judge all sin, all wickedness. And, and, and that frees us because it means that we don't need to take matters into our own hands. We don't need to go looking for revenge when we are wronged. We don't need to, to bear a grudge or hold on to, to bitterness, which ends up causing all sorts of harm, not just to us, but to those around us. No, we can entrust every wrong, every slight, every offense into the hands of the God who sees it all, who knows it all, and who promises to one day judge it all. The fact that God refuses to turn a blind eye to evil is something to be thankful for. And the imagery that we have in verse 3, for God tells those who are his, the righteous, that you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. That, that's speaking there about the vindication of the righteous. That you can be sure that if you have been wronged, if you have been unfairly treated, God knows, he sees, and one day you will be vindicated. But secondly, God is crystal clear about the seriousness of that judgment day. And, and he's so clear because it means that those who haven't done so yet can turn to him before it's too late. He's, he's giving them that opportunity. You see, what God says here is very black and white. You know, it's very popular today to, to deal in shades of gray, isn't it? Nuance. 
But there's no nuance here. It's very black and white. Those who were to be counted as his treasured possession were those whose names were written down in a book of remembrance. I'm guessing it was black ink. They were the righteous, literally in black and white. That meant that those in Israel who hadn't yet returned to him, whose names weren't in that book, they fell on the side of the wicked. Their future prospect was to be burned up like stubble. And by giving them a glimpse of their future, God was graciously giving them the opportunity to turn to him before it was too late. And if you haven't put your trust in him yet, then that is a gracious gift and opportunity that God is giving you right now. Acceptance by God, it is not something that you can earn by your efforts. It's something that he offers by grace to those who put their trust in him. God's warnings about his future judgment, they are not the kind of thing to be hidden away, to be embarrassed about, to be swept under the carpet. They are for our good. If you knew someone who was facing certain danger and you knew you could warn them in time so that they could avoid that danger, then the right thing, the loving thing, wouldn't be to avoid telling them, it would be to warn them, wouldn't it? And that's what God does here. Not just for his people then, but for us now. The prospect of God's judgment is rightly one to be feared, but it's given as a warning so that we can turn to him before it's too late. And for those who do, they face a very different future. If you look with me at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, that phrase, that the son of righteousness, this is the only time that it, it appears in the Bible. But it's a, a beautiful image. It, it gives an image of the promise of, of, of a day where the sun will rise and bring healing. The people of Malachi's day, those who put their trust in the Lord amidst their bitter circumstances, they could look forward to a day when healing would come. And it's a promise for all God's people today that whatever pain, whatever hurt we might have to endure in this life, whatever scars we might have to bear, whatever addictions we might have to battle with, one day our darkness will come to an end. One day the sun of righteousness will rise and bring healing. And however downcast, however burdened, however broken we might be, one day we will be full of life and vitality. We will be freed to, to live life to the full like young calves released from the stall. That's what the image we have there. Many moons ago, uh, I, when I played football, my nickname as a player was the gazelle. Uh, because of my ability to leap around the pitch at speed. Um, and I, those days are such a distant memory as I, my hips ache when I turn in bed. It's a glorious image to think about life and vitality, something to look forward to. It's a glorious promise of a future where all brokenness will be healed, where everything sad will become untrue. 
But how can we be sure that that future will be ours? Well, the answer to that question is found in the close of the book and the last few words of the Old Testament. We read in verse 4 to 6, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So notice God calls them to look back, to remember Moses. Uh, he's talking there about the law uh, and the, com the commands that he'd given his people. To remember them was to live in obedience to them and to be reminded of uh, God's saving works. God first gave the law to his people after he'd rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And their response to his saving love was to live uh, as his people in obedience to his commands. That's the way it always is in the Christian life. We don't obey God in order to earn his favor. We obey him in response to his saving love. But of course, the history of God's people tells us, and our own experience tells us, that by ourselves, we cannot possibly keep God's law perfectly. We, we fall short of a, a perfect holy God. We deserve his judgment. And that's why we need the ministry that God speaks about in verse 5, the ministry of Elijah. Now, Elijah was Israel's greatest prophet, but he was, he was in the past. And God is talking here about a, a future prophet that he was going to send. And this promised Elijah would have a, a particular ministry, a ministry that would be focused on reconciliation. He gives the example of a, a family relationship that can sometimes be fraught with difficulty. A, a father's relationship with his children. And maybe you know all too well the pain of broken family relationships. Maybe you know the particular pain of a father who hasn't loved you as he ought, and the damage that that has done. Maybe it's left you longing for healing and for the love of a father. Well, the wonderful news of the Christian faith is that there is a father who loves his children, a perfect heavenly father who cherishes his children as his treasured possession. A father who loved us so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, God says that the promised Elijah would come with this ministry of reconciliation. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, then you'll know that the promised Elijah that's spoken about in Malachi, he's fulfilled in the New Testament figure of John the Baptist. And we saw the other week that, that John the Baptist had been given the role of preparing the way for Jesus. His ministry pointed to the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus would bring. He was the one that would fulfill it. The Son of God, the righteous one who would bring healing where there was brokenness. And he did that when he went to his death on the cross. Jesus, the only one who perfectly obeyed the law of Moses, yet chose to bear the judgment of God in the place of sinful people 
like you and me. And he did that so that we could know reconciliation with our Heavenly Father, so that we could know what it is to be his treasured possession, so that we could know that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, not only is our past forgiven, but our future is absolutely secure in him. Our names are written in his book of life, and we have nothing to fear on that judgment day because the judge of all the earth is also our Savior. And the penalty, that judgment, has already been dealt with at the cross for all who turn from their sin and put their trust in Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You, in Your grace and Your mercy and Your love, you give us a glimpse of the future, that even though we don't deserve it, you have shown us how we can meet you, uh, knowing that we are your treasured possession. Lord, it's not something we can earn. It's not something we can achieve uh, by coming along here Sunday by Sunday or trying to be good. It's something that is ours when we throw ourselves in your mercy and put our faith in the Lord Jesus, who has done everything that we couldn't do. We pray, Lord God, that you would fix our eyes on that future day. Lord, when we're maybe enduring difficult circumstances and situations, when our lives are bitter, Lord, remind us of the glorious hope that we have in Christ. And for those who don't yet know you, Lord, I pray that this would be, a, 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 that this would be taken as it's meant to be, as a, as a loving warning to receive you before it's too late. And we pray these things uh, as we come to this table now to take bread and wine. We thank you again for the visible reminder that we have of what the Lord Jesus has done, of the sacrifice that he was willing to make, of the judgment that has been paid at the cross. We pray these things in his name. Amen.